to to First Samuel uh, as we look at the measure of a man. Uh, there was a song uh, several years ago, like several several years ago, when I was uh, a kid, by a uh, kind of like a Christian boy band called For Him. Um, and uh, the number for him. That was back when band names thought it was cool to have numbers in their band names. And so instead of words, for him, and it was four guys, quartet. And they had a song called The Measure of a Man. And you may remember it. I'll dare not sing it for you. But uh, uh, the lyrics went something like, uh, I say the measure of a man is not how tall he stands, how wealthy or intelligent you are, so on and so forth. And the gist of the, the, gist of the song is that God does not see... Uh, uh, our personhood as a matter of what we appear to be on the outside, but who we are on the inside, which is a uh, concept that is uh, drawn from the book of First Samuel, where Samuel the prophet is going out to anoint a king who will succeed the, um, uh, the rejected Saul, and he comes to a man named Jesse with his seven sons, and the first six who are all older, good-looking, tall, strapping young men. And God says, I haven't chosen any of them. Uh, do not be persuaded by what you see on the outside. For the Lord does not look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And it is through uh, that that Samuel is then led to ask where Jesse's other son is, who is David, a young shepherd boy out in the fields, who will uh, become the king of Israel. Uh, Samuel is a... Uh, a book that primarily follows the ascendancy of Saul uh, as the first king of Israel and then follows up with um, David's ascendancy uh, or succession of Saul as rightful king of Israel. And really, there are three main characters in the book of Samuel. Um, I should say there are four. The first is God, who plays a prominent role in all of it. The second major character is Samuel, then Saul and David. And primarily tonight, we'll be looking through uh, the book of 1 Samuel through the lens of those three human characters and what kind of men they are. And scripture says um, that they are. Let's get right into the particulars of the book that we have tonight. And before we do that, uh, let me pray for us and ask God to bless our time. God, we do give you thanks for opportunity to come together as the church to worship you in song and again in your word tonight to be edified by it. We ask God that you would use this time to build your church through your word. Help us to see our own lives and the lives of others through your eyes and from your perspective. God, help us to be those who are judging our lives, discerning the trajectory of our lives, not by what others can see uh, from the outside, uh, but by the nature and direction and disposition of our hearts. God, that they are turned toward you, that they are submitted to you, to your lordship and, uh, and sovereignty in our lives. Help us through 1 Samuel tonight as we look at it. God, help us to see you clearly at work. Uh, transform us as we encounter your word. And God, help us to learn from those faithful men and women who have gone before us uh, in the history of uh, Israel and throughout the text of Scripture. God, help us to learn by them and to be changed by you as we study uh, their lives and your word uh, about them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we kind of detail the particulars of this book, as we do each time that we gather together, we look first at things like the author and the date of composition and uh, major themes without, uh, throughout the book. So first of all, the author. Now, the book is named 1 Samuel, and it's the first part of two volumes, 1 and 2 Samuel, that kind of go together. And actually, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings and 2 Kings all sort of comprise the history of the kings uh, of Israel. Now, the book of 1 Samuel, and same with 2 Samuel, has no recorded author. There's nowhere in the book that says Samuel the prophet wrote these things, or uh, Nathan the prophet wrote these things down, or whatever. There's no recorded author, but 1 Chronicles 29 implies for us that Samuel, the prophet and last judge of Israel, wrote at least some of this first volume. 
Now, Samuel himself will die in 1 Samuel 25. And so somebody else must have written what followed uh, after his death, and certainly the whole volume of 2 Samuel. So in some parts, Samuel may have been the author of some of it, but uh, in truth, we don't know with absolute certainty who wrote this book. Uh, considering the date, uh, there are the date of the events of Samuel and then the date of the writing. The date of the events of Samuel takes place at the end of the period of the Judges. And you remember how wonderfully uh, the book of Judges ended as uh, the, um, uh, the, the, whoever it was that wrote Judges, maybe Samuel, said there, were, there was no king in Israel in those days and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The period of the Judges was marked by rampant disobedience and idolatry among the people of Israel. And that's where 1 Samuel picks up. Uh, that's uh, part of the uh, dating of, of the events that's going on. The, uh, it also will include all of the events of Saul's ascendancy to the throne, as we've said before, and David's as well. Uh, David will formally take the throne in Second Samuel, so we won't get to that at the end of this book uh, here today. We'll, you'll have to wait until next time. But the date of its final composition, so the time when 1 Samuel was uh, all the way put together, is likely sometime before the kingdom of Israel was split in two after Solomon's death. Uh, The latest date for the final composition is probably somewhere around 925 B.C., knowing that uh, David uh, took the throne uh, sometime around uh, between 1000 and, and 1010, or I should say 1010 and 1000 B.C. A brief summary of the book of 1 Samuel, just distilling it into a few sentences. This is in your worship guide tonight. Hopefully you got one of those. If not, uh, grab one on your way out. 1 Samuel is the history of Israel's request for a king and the results of that request. Now, this first volume of Samuel's books details the meteoric rise of Saul. Saul shoots out like a rocket onto the leadership stage in Israel. Uh, And then uh, it details his sort of 40-year slow downfall as a king. And with Saul's rejection uh, uh, rejection by God as king of Israel, David is anointed to then succeed Saul as king. And as Saul's leadership erodes under a laundry list of self-reliant mistakes, David's character of obedience begins to highlight his ascendancy as leader in Israel. So here's what's kind of happening uh, in, in Samuel, if I could illustrate it with my hands. I'm a hand talker. I realize that sometimes I don't know sign language. It would probably help me to learn it. As Saul... Uh, Saul rises to power very quickly and then slowly kind of tapers off as he makes all these mistakes and the Lord rejects him as king. But as he's making these mistakes, David begins to to kind of rise. And so there is a point at which uh, Saul's downfall and David's ascendancy sort of intersect. And at that point, there is uh, a great conflict and a lot of uh, dissension between the two, mostly from Saul toward David. And, and a majority of the book itself is, is spent detailing the conflict between Saul and David. Major themes of the book of First Samuel are these, the kingship of God. Now, there's a king in Israel, but we'll find that it is not the king who should be king in Israel. The historic providence of God. God provides for his people throughout history, even when it's really not in their best interest, but they want it anyway. We see the sovereignty of God, that God guides and directs these things that happen in the course of Israel's history. And we see, uh, finally, uh, as one of the strongest themes in 1 Samuel, the value of obedience to God. 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23, where uh, two of my Old Testament professors' favorite two verses, I think in all of the Old Testament, because uh, that's what I remember him talking about the most. This is a point where Samuel says to uh, to Saul, as, um, as he has made one of his uh, historic mistakes, he says, as the Lord is great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. Obedience to God is far better than the outward expressions of sacrifice, the outward expressions of worship, because obedience begins in the heart. It's not just the things we do with our hands. It begins with, and, and our feed, what our lives look like. It begins in our hearts, and that's the sort of thing that God sees. 
as we look at 1 Samuel in the scope of redemption history, we find it um, falling sort of uh, or covering at least these themes of both fall and redemption. So we see the fallenness of Israel in their sinful request for a king. And we see also the beginning of, uh, or not the beginning, but, but just another installment, if you will, of God's intended plan of redemption and rescue for his people. Uh, we get a glimpse of the kind of king that God says Israel must have. And it's not a king like Saul. It's, it's not even quite a king like David. It's a king better than him. So there are hints toward the redemption of Israel and also of all people. So take your pencil, your pen, and just maybe circle those two central themes of redemption history, fall and redemption. Now, as you're reading 1 Samuel uh, in your own personal study, uh, if you were to sit and read 1 Samuel all the way through, it might take you a couple hours to read. Uh, when I study for these times to, uh, like we do on Sunday nights, I like to read the text while I also listen to it uh, on an audio Bible uh, app that I have. And that helps me to just pick up other things I wouldn't normally if I were just reading on my own. And so I think with the audio, uh, listening to it on the audio Bible at time and a quarter speed, it took me about an hour and a half to go through. So it might take you a couple hours to read through 1 Samuel on your own. It doesn't take up that much space in your Bibles, and it flows pretty quickly. It's a narrative. It's a historical narrative. And so you don't get bogged down in a lot of these kind of stacked up phrases like we would maybe in Romans or Corinthians, where Paul is creating this really heavily structured logical argument. 1 Samuel is different in that uh, it's telling a story, and it's teaching through storytelling. So it's a little bit more of an enjoyable read, I think, than uh, some of the longer maybe epistles that we get in in the New Testament. Now, understanding that Samuel is historical narrative, there are helpful questions to ask as we go through. And I would suggest you keep these questions in your mind as you're reading through 1 Samuel on your own. What is this text telling me about God and his character? We've asked that question, I think, every single time we've looked at historic, historical narrative in the Bible. What is this text telling me about who God is, how he uh, deals with people, what he is like, how he interacts with human beings, how he responds to sinful actions or righteous choices, those sorts of things. Then ask, what is this uh, text, what is this passage revealing to me about God's relationship to Israel and then also to the church. Start with Israel because 1 Samuel is uh, with relation to the people of Israel. And then, uh, and then press on that question for implications for we who are uh, uh, followers in Christ, the fulfillment of a, a promise of a perfect king to Israel. Then finally ask, what does this text reveal about how God deals with people? Specifically, what... Uh, uh, what is this text maybe pointing out in my life uh, with regard to my relationship with God and what I need to tend to uh, as a follower of God, as a follower of Christ? Now, you have in your, um, in your worship guides an outline of 1 Samuel, uh, just kind of in summary. And I won't hit all the small bits. Um, I'll just show the four major sort of movements. We have first the story of Samuel, uh, chapters 1 through 7, which is Samuel's birth and uh, kind of his uh, rise to prominence as a judge and then uh, up to the point where he anoints Saul as king. And then the story kind of shifts in chapter 8 where you have this transition to a monarchy, where the people of Israel are asking for a king, and Samuel goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, uh, Samuel says, I know this is going to be really, really bad for them. Do I have to do it? And God says, uh, "Don't, Samuel, I got this. What the people have asked for is evil. They've rejected me as a king, but give them a king anyway. Then from chapters 9 through 15, we have the story of Saul, uh, which is his, his, again, his rise to the throne and, um, and, and generally his reign up until chapter 15 where David comes onto the scene. And so from, uh, uh, the, excuse me, chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 15 through pretty much the end of uh, 1 Samuel, you have the narrative following David. Now, again, David and Saul's stories overlap so heavily through most of the text that it's hard to, it's hard to say when one story stops and the other one begins. There's not a hard break between the two. But the focus shifts somewhere in there. Now, we won't cover it tonight, but there is this really cool uh, incident in the course of uh, uh, 1 Samuel, where uh, in Samuel chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, um, 
prior to that in chapter 4, there was a war between the, the perennial enemies of Israel, the Philistines, and Israel. And Israel showed up to the battle with the Ark of the Lord, the, the Ark of the, uh, of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp of Israel, they all shouted really, really loud, and the Philistines across the valley heard it, and they're like, yikes, uh, God must have come among that camp. We're going to have to fight really, really hard. And so the Philistines do fight really, really hard, and they actually prevail over Israel. And they capture the ark. That was part of what uh, would happen in ancient uh, sort of wartime like that. The different people would bring the representations of their gods out and uh, so as to like uh, bless their battle, if you will. And it's interesting that the Israelites bring the ark of God out, and yet they are defeated. Well, the Philistines take the Ark of God back to their home city, and they set the Ark of God in a temple, the temple of the god Dagon. And uh, Dagon, a false god, uh, had an image set up inside of this temple. And uh, day after day, as the priests go into the temple of Dagon, they find different strange things happening. So the Ark of the Covenant sitting right next to the statue of Dagon uh, in this temple. And one day the priests go in and the, um, the statue of Dagon has fallen over on its face. And they're like, oh, that's odd. So they pick up the statue of Dagon, put it back in its place, leave. They come back the next day and, uh, and other weird things happen. And they come back again and the head of the statue of Dagon has fallen off along with his hands as well, so as to totally, uh, well, decapitate and, uh, and make powerless this statue of Dagon. And the priests of Philistia have no idea what is going on other than to say, we got to get this Ark of God out of here. And so very quickly, they return that thing to sender and uh, send the Ark back to Israel. Uh, that's a, a really cool story about the power of the true God uh, in competition with false gods and with idols here in the course of Samuel that uh, uh, we won't look at in detail tonight, but it's certainly worth reading a wonderful passage. Well, let's look at the measure of a man in Samuel through the characters of Samuel, of Saul, and of David. First, let's look at the measure of Samuel. Samuel is a servant to the Lord and subject to the word of God. This begins even in his birth. Samuel's own birth sets the tone for the kind of man that he will be. We're told in the first chapters of Samuel that his mother, Hannah, was barren. She was unable to have children. But Hannah prayed desperately to the Lord for a son, saying in chapter 1, verse 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forgive your servant, or not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She's saying that her son, if the Lord would bless her with one, would have a would live a life as a perpetual Nazarite. He would never cut his hair as being one who is fully devoted to God every day of his life. Samuel's own birth sets the tone for the kind of man he will be, a servant of the Lord, subject to the word of God. But his, the, the measure of the person that Samuel is as a servant of the Lord, subject to the word, is also evident at his calling, his calling to serve the Lord. Now Samuel was to be, as we saw, a dedicated servant of the Lord, even from before his conception. But after Samuel is born and then weaned, so he's maybe three, four years old, he goes to serve in the tabernacle with the priest Eli. Now Eli is kind of a tragic character because he's a decent priest, decent guy, but his sons are horrible, horrible guys. They are wicked, abusive to the people of Israel, defiling the sacrifices of God by stealing the choicest cuts of meat from off the altar for themselves, even before they've been sacrificed. Now, the child Samuel, who becomes sort of a, a, an apprentice right there along with Eli, one night, and you'll, this is a very familiar story, one night hears a voice calling to him after he and Eli have already uh, laid down for the night. Three times Samuel hears this voice calling to him. And three times he wakes up and gets up out of bed and goes to Eli to ask Eli why he's calling him. Eli, we learn, has not called Samuel any of those times. Eli doesn't need anything from him. And it takes three times before Eli recognizes, oh, Samuel, what you're hearing is the voice of the Lord calling. So the next time you hear it, what you need to say is, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. 
Samuel goes back to bed. He lays down, and again, he hears a voice calling out, Samuel, Samuel. And so he, taking the advice of his wise mentor, uh, responds in chapter 3, verse 9, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And those are no small words for Samuel. Those are words that will define his life as a prophet and a judge of Israel. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's the kind of guy Samuel is. And as Samuel obeys, he soon receives a word from the Lord regarding the coming doom and demise of Eli's perverse sons. Could you imagine being, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine years old and having to tell your much senior mentor that uh, the Lord is going to kill his sons because they're wicked. But yet that is the burden that the Lord has given to Samuel. Now, after Eli dies... Later on, Samuel will become the final judge of Israel. So he's a, he's a prophet, but he's also a judge. He's the one that the people of Israel come to with their requests, with their problems, with their conflicts. He judges between them, but he's also a prophet, so he also is speaking for the Lord. As a judge, he calls the people to, later on in chapter 7, repent of their sinfulness and idolatry. There's a point in which the Israelites have been beaten so many times by the Philistines that they recognize, man, we're really in trouble. And so Samuel says, look, you need to repent. You need to turn to the Lord in faithfulness. And so in chapter 7, verse 3, he says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel is a servant of the Lord. He's a subject to the word of the Lord in his birth, even before his conception, at his calling, but even also in the midst of a foolish people. How many times have we seen Israel just act so foolish and thought that we were better than them? Uh, Often, right? Uh, the people of Israel are, are a helpful mirror to us because they make a lot of the mistakes in uh, mass that we often make just particularly or individually on our own. There's much we can learn about faithfulness to the Lord, even in difficult or trying times, from watching the failures of Israel. But Samuel is not like the people of Israel. He's a servant of the Lord. He's subject to the word of the Lord, even while they are foolish. When the Lord speaks, Samuel obeys. When the Lord tells Samuel to deliver a word, even if it's a hard word, he does it. So it happens that the people of Israel become impressed with the kings of the nations that surround them. And they decide that they want a king too. Everybody else has got a king. We don't have a king. There's something wrong with us, Israel says. We want a king, Samuel. You're the judge. You're the person that we're going to. Give us a king. Now the funny thing about Israel is that they were the hillbillies of their day. Now, 1 Samuel 13, verse 19, tells us that at that time there was no blacksmith at all in Israel, such that the Israelites didn't even have adequate or effective weapons to fight against their enemies. They lived in the hills, literally, had relatively limited technology compared to the surrounding nations. They were a small people, a piddly little people, and yet they were God's chosen people. They're technologically deficient. They're they're governmentally lacking in the eyes of the world, or at least so they think. And so the Israelites do one of the most foolish things that they can do in all of the Old Testament, and they ask for a king, a human king, so that they can be like the other people around them. In chapter 8, verse 5, all of the elders of Israel gathered together. Uh, We read in verse 4, And they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. It's interesting to know that even as good a man as Samuel was, had a great mentor in Eli, Samuel's sons turn out to be wicked as well. The people say, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. This request angers Samuel that they would ask for a king. And so he prays to the Lord about what to do. Lord, I know this is a perverse request that they have made. What would you have me do? And the Lord answers this in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 8. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. 
So Samuel delivers the harsh word of the Lord to the people. This is a foolish thing you're asking. This is what the king is going to do. You want a king? When you get a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to make war against other nations. He's going to take from your crops and your daughters and your sons. He's going to make you his slaves, and you will cry out to the Lord for help to deliver you from the king that you have asked for. That's what's coming, Samuel says. And the people say, that's fine. We want that king. It's a hard thing to tell your people the hard news that they do not want to hear and will not believe, but desperately need to understand. But this is what servants of the Lord who obey his word do. This is the kind of guy Samuel is. Servant of the Lord, subject to the word. If the Lord has said it, he's going to relay it to the people. Now there's application here, immediate application here for pastors and for those who would be called to lead God's people. Serve the Lord, not the desires of the people. With all the love in your heart, with all the grace you can muster, with all that God can give you to minister to those that He has called you to lead, say the hard things and trust God's sovereign care. Dear church, you should want leaders who are willing to say the hard things that you don't want to hear. The hard but true things that are difficult to hear. Because you want leaders who are working to serve God and to please God and to lead the church into righteousness and greater holiness rather than to give you what you want. There's application here for the people of God as well. For we who are the church and those of us who have uh, people and spiritual authority over us. Do not put trust and hope in the structures and the governments of the world. It's tempting to, but don't. Don't place your hope in, in either of the two dominant political parties in this world. Don't place your hope in the midterm elections this fall. Those things are not of God, and they are not God. Remember that just as God delivered Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, subject to God as king, so also has he saved those who trust in his Son to be subject to Jesus Christ. Your chief allegiance, dear Christian, is to Jesus as king, not to elected political parties, not to governmental institutions, not to corporate institutions. They are not our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. So let us then not be tempted to exchange the lordship of Jesus Christ for the governing of human leaders. And let us look for and ask the Lord to give us leaders who will say the hard things in the right way so that we can hear how how God would have us to live. The measure of Samuel is one as a servant to the Lord and subject to the word. And then we have the character of Saul, this first king of Israel. The measure of Saul, who is a head above the rest and altogether self-impressed. I like that rhyme. Sounds good. Saul's a big, tall, attractive guy, and he is big in his own eyes too. Visibly, Saul is the king that the people of Israel wanted. Chapter 9 of Samuel, verse 2, tells us this. Uh, that there was a man named uh, Kish who had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul is externally impressive. He is all of the things that Israel wants in a king. They look at the nations around them, the kings that they have, and those are impressive kings. They're really tall guys. They know how to command a room or a battlefield. They're charismatic individuals. Saul is the guy in the room that everybody's eyes look to when he walks in. He's tall. He's handsome, he's physically and visually impressive, and as we'll see, fairly impressed with himself as well. You ever met somebody like that? Just had everything going for him and they knew it? That's Saul. Samuel, however, being the servant of the Lord that he is, before stepping aside uh, as judge over Israel to allow Saul to reign, he warns the people once more about the wickedness of their request for a king. He anoints Saul as king, and he's going to present Saul as king to the people. But then he says one more time in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, verses 12 through 25, he says one more time, this is what you're getting yourselves into, Right? He says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. 
If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Catch this. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. We'll stop there. Samuel says, here's your king. This is the guy you asked for. But I want you to know this is a terrible decision. This is the most foolish thing you have done as a people yet. And to show you that it's foolish, I'm going to ask God to send rain and thunder on the land today. And when he does do that, you will know. You will know that what you've done is wicked. And so he prays to the Lord and the Lord sends thunder and rain. So as to prove to the people, big mistake, guys. Big mistake. The problem will be for the people of Israel that neither Saul nor the people will ultimately be able to humble themselves and serve God the way God deserves and demands to be served. They will allow their pride, they will allow their, their uh, preferences and their, uh, the envy of their hearts for the gods that other nations have to keep them from serving God faithfully. Again, in chapter 12, they promised, yeah, Lord, we'll do it. Samuel, we'll, we'll follow the Lord, we'll be obedient, and yet they do not. Saul himself will set the example of self-reliance that will be his downfall and ultimately the downfall of Israel in the future. In chapter 13, so Saul is anointed king in chapter 12, and in chapter 13, we already have Saul's first act of disobedience. In chapter 13, Saul disobeys the word of God through Samuel the first time by offering sacrifices to the Lord before a battle that he was not authorized to offer. So it would regularly happen that as the kings of Israel went out to battle, they would offer a sacrifice to the Lord, asking the Lord for, uh, for his blessing, for his care, for his provision in the battle. But those sacrifices needed to be uh, um, uh, presented the proper way according to God's law. And so uh, uh, Samuel, being the prophet at the time and sort of the only one, uh, or the one who, could, who was most able to serve as priest, was to be the one who offered the sacrifice. Well, Samuel was late in getting to the sacrifice meeting, and Saul got impatient. So he said, well, Samuel's not here. He's supposed to be here by now. So uh, guys, just go ahead and uh, 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 slaughter the animals, and we'll just do the sacrifices ourselves. Well, no sooner does Saul act, on his diso- act disobediently and start sacrificing these animals than does Samuel show up and go, what are you doing? Dude, what are you doing? Saul's first act of disobedience. And at his first act of disobedience, the Lord tells Saul through Samuel in chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. But now your kingdom shall not continue, the Lord says. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up. After Saul to meet the army, they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Saul then acts foolishly a second time in chapter 14. The the guy just can't help but rack up these disobediences in his life. Here in chapter 14, he requires his soldiers to keep a fast in the middle of a series of battles with the promise of putting to death any who disobey. So they're not doing well in these course of battles. He says, that's it. Everybody fast. Nobody eat anything. And if anybody eats anything, I'm going to kill you. Okay? And so he does that. But his own son, Jonathan, misses that order. Saul's son, Jonathan, has taken a special ops group out to go take care of, uh, 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 to raid a Philistine camp. And on their way to raid this Philistine camp, they find some honey out in the wilderness and they eat it and they're strengthened. Because uh, imagine this, when you're tired and, and you're not fighting well, when you eat something, you feel better. Now, when word gets back to Saul, he is livid. When word gets back to Saul that Jonathan and them have gone out and that somebody has broken the fast, he is livid. He is ready to kill even his own son, Jonathan. Eventually, he is dissuaded 
by the other people, but the whole situation is a mess. Shows that Saul himself is relying more on his own wisdom than on that which comes from the Lord. He's losing these battles. He goes, I don't know what to do. So everybody fast. He hasn't consulted the Lord about what to do. Just everybody take a fast, nobody eat. We'll see if the Lord hears us then. And Jonathan, who uh, is wise in allowing his special ops group to eat uh, and to be strengthened, is still also disobedient to his father. It's just a mess. It's just a hot, stinking mess, this guy Saul. And it shows that he is just relying more on his own wisdom than he is on the wisdom that comes from the Lord. Mistake number two. Mistake number three comes in chapter 15. Three chapters, three mistakes. Here in chapter 15, he's commanded by God in a battle to destroy all of the Amalekites with all of their livestock and to devote everything among the Amalekite kingdom to destruction. Destroy it all, God says. Now, you'll remember the Amalekites uh, were those that came against Israel back in Exodus. You can look on that at your own time. So there's a longstanding sort of feud between Israel and and, uh, and the Amalekites. But during the battle between Israel and the Amalekites, Israel prevails. They defeat the Amalekites, but they don't devote everything to destruction. Saul allows the king of the, the, the Amalekites, King Agag, to be taken prisoner. And they keep all of the best of the livestock and all of the spoils of war, all the best of everything that the Amalekites have, the, the, the Israelites keep, Saul orders them to keep. And so when Samuel comes up after the battle is over upon the scene, uh, he, uh, his words to Saul are, are great because Samuel delivered the word to Saul, destroy everything, all the livestock, all of it. And Samuel comes upon the camp and he says, what is this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle that I hear in my ears? It's the sound of disobedience. And this is where in chapter 15, <clears throat> Samuel says to Saul, in verses 22 and 23, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And Saul kept all the cattle, all the livestock, all the choicest animals for sacrifice to the Lord because he thought, I'll just save all of these, I'll sacrifice them to the Lord and the Lord will be happy. Samuel says, that's not what God asked you to do. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the Lord is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul's rejection as king will come also with God's withdrawal of his spirit from Saul. From the moment Saul later discovers that David has been chosen to succeed him as king, he will go mad with rage. And he will stop at nearly nothing to ensure that David will not live to see the throne. Saul will kill priests that aid David in his flight from Saul in chapter 22. And Saul will forsake the law of God and the word of God by seeking insight from a necromancer. That's a person who talks to dead people in chapter 28. Mistake after disobedience after mistake after disobedience in the life of Saul because he will not listen to the Lord. He's ahead above the rest, but altogether self-impressed. Here's the lesson from Saul's life. That obedience and humility before God are far more pleasing, far more wise than the wisdom of man. Saul's life is a caution to all of us who would ever be tempted to think uh, ourselves wise in our own eyes. Saul's life is a warning to the people of God, even to us in the church, not to be impressed by man's outward appearances, but by the heart of the man. For as Samuel 16 verse 7 says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What sort of person will we be? What sort of, how, how will our discipleship, how will our obedience to God be characterized? By being self-impressed? Or by being one who is humble in heart, ready to listen and be obedient to the Lord? Will we be like the one that God sees, looks on his heart, a man after his own heart, which is the kind of person that David is, our final character here. The measure of David is not as a man who is self-impressed, but a man who is after God's own heart. We just read there in Samuel sixteen seven. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
That word that we read comes as a word to Samuel when he goes to anoint a man that will succeed Saul as king. The one he anoints, we know, is David, the youngest of several brothers, a shepherd boy with curly hair, a penchant for good-hearted mischief, and a heart that has been impressed by the God of Israel. David is a man after God's own heart. He is impressed with God. He is impressed, first and foremost, by the glory and the might of the Lord. Perhaps no other event in David's life shows his dependence upon the Lord and his confidence in the Lord like that encounter with Goliath, the giant Philistine. We all know the story. How God, uh, excuse me, how Goliath taunted the Israelite army who fearfully stayed far away from him, wouldn't respond to his invitation to one-on-one combat. We know the story of how Goliath taunted the Israelite army that for several days and they fearfully stayed away. How David came to bring his brothers some food to the front lines. How David was incensed by this giant as he was insulting the Lord on the battlefield. And of how David volunteered this young shepherd boy, unlikely hero, volunteered to fight Goliath in, in the stead of the army of Israel. We know the story of David and Goliath. David's confidence that day in the Lord came from years of the Lord's previous help in his life. David's confidence in the Lord, is, it's just not an accident in 1 Samuel 17 as he faces Goliath. David knows that the Lord can be trusted. David knows that the Lord protects those who are obedient to him. And so David has no problem with stepping up to the plate to fight Goliath. In chapter 17, verse 37, David says this, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David's confidence in the Lord gave him boldness to confront that Philistine giant in the middle of that valley, not only in battle, but with words of truth. And so in chapter 17, verses 43 through 47, we get David's speech to Goliath, little shepherd boy against nine and a half foot tall, experienced warrior giant. Verse 43, we read, The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Because David had come with just a staff in his hand and a sling. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This guy's got guts. But more than guts, he has confidence in the Lord God of Israel who protects his people, who goes with his people. The one detail of the story of David and Goliath that I love the most and we always leave out of our Sunday school tellings is that after David slings that stone and sinks it into uh, Goliath's forehead and he falls down in front of David, that that's not the end of their confrontation. David runs over, takes Goliath's sword, and cuts his own head off with it. It's awesome. It's awesome. I, I am certain to every time we read uh, the story of David and Goliath, which is my girl's, I think, favorite story in the Jesus uh, storybook Bible, uh, that detail is never in there, but I always make sure it gets in there, if even as a footnote. Because I feel like my girls need to know that David cut Goliath's head off with his own sword. Now listen, if you've been reading the story of David and Goliath your whole life as a tale about how to overcome obstacles in your life, uh, as, as advice on how to slay the giants of your life, you have misunderstood the story. That's not what David and Goliath is about. The purpose of this story is not to say that you can defeat any giant in your life if you'll just have enough faith. The point of this event in Israel's history is to show that you can't overcome anything. The point of this event is to say that every battle is the Lord's. 
It is to say that no victory or success in your life should result in your praise, but that every victory should result in the declaration that God is able. David is a man after God's own heart who is impressed by the glory and the might of the Lord, and that shows itself most clearly in this defeat of this Philistine. But he's also a man after God's own heart who is impressed by the sovereignty of God, by the, the universal power of God. Now, not, not long after David slays the giant, the people of Israel begin to fawn after him. They start singing uh, uh, praise songs about David in the streets. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And as the people are singing these things in the streets, Saul grows deeply jealous of David. Much of the rest of the narrative of Samuel tells the story of how Saul tried all he could do to destroy David. Twice, Saul launches a spear at David's head and misses. Once, he follows David into the wilderness and kills some priests who had harbored and helped David. It's not without irony that the only place David is ultimately able to find refuge is in the land of the Philistines. Even there, David only escapes harm by acting like a madman, like he's lost his mind. He, he intentionally drools all over himself and messes up his hair and doesn't bathe. He makes a, just a mess of himself so that the Philistines will think that he's not a threat. Knowing he's been anointed by God to take the throne of Israel when Saul dies, why then does David, not, why then does David run? Why does he leave Israel? Why does he dodge spears and never throw any back? Why, when David has opportunity in both chapters 24 and 26 to kill Saul and take the throne, does David continually spare the king and keep on running? David does all of this because he's been impressed by the sovereign choice of God to make Saul king. David knows he didn't choose Saul to be king, but that God chose Saul to be king. And even if God has chosen David to be king in succession to Saul, that does not give David the right to impose his will upon God's sovereign choice. Though Saul may be a bad king, he's still the king that God has chosen. And David respects that. In chapter 24, verse 6, after uh, David relented or, or, or restrained himself from killing Saul when he had opportunity in a cave. He, uh, chapter 24, verse 6 says this, David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Who am I to kill the one God has chosen? Again, in chapter 26, verse 23, after David and some of his mighty men go into Saul's camp at one, uh, one night and they have opportunity to kill Saul, uh, David says, no, 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 we're not doing that. Um, take, take a couple things, you know, steal a couple things and take them with you so that we can show Saul we had opportunity to kill him but didn't, but don't kill him. Because in chapter 26, verse 23, uh, uh, David says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, he says to Saul, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David is a man after God's own heart who is impressed by the sovereignty of God, so much so that he will not do anything his, in his life to contravene what the Lord has already willed. Which means he has to run. It means he has to run to Philistia. It means he has to act like a madman to survive until Saul dies and he can come back as king. But David does all of this not because he's shrewd or wise or sneaky or conniving. He does it all because he loves the Lord and he respects the Lord's choice. And he's not going to do anything that will be disobedient to God. He's a man after God's own heart. And there are many other details in the life of David in this volume of his ascendancy uh, to, to the kingship of Israel. But few of them are more important than this, that David has a real humility before God, a real respect of God's sovereign provision. And he has a right view of himself to know that all God does in his timing is good and right. It's not up to David to determine what is the best timing for God's plan. David is the opposite of Saul in his philosophy of leadership. Where Saul thinks highly of himself to the point of disobeying God, David presumes he is far too unworthy to ever contravene against the word of God and the work of God. Church, are you so impressed with the might and sovereignty of God as David? Who is larger in your own eyes, God or yourself? 
Whose wisdom do you most often follow? The Lord's? Your own? Someone else's? The measure of a man, according to Samuel, is not in how handsome he is. It's not in how strong he is. It's not in how valiant a warrior he is. And certainly not in how impressive a politician or speaker or leader he may appear to be. The measure of a man is in his service to the Lord, like Samuel, and in his rightly humbled view of himself before a mighty God like David. Let's read for Samuel and learn to be like Samuel, a servant to the Lord, subject to his word, to be like David in this instance, to humble ourselves before God, to be impressed with the might and the glory and the sovereignty of God such that we would never even dare to disobey his command. Samuel is a great book on character. It helps us to know what sort of character God values in people. It helps us to see others the way that God sees people, not looking at outward appearances, but looking at the heart. But Samuel also teaches us at least one thing about Jesus. And so we look for the connection to Christ in Samuel, and it is this, that Jesus is the true and better David. As good a king as David is, and will, uh, as great of a character as he shows himself to have in 1 Samuel, Jesus is truer and better than David. Jesus is not the king we deserve, but he is the king we desperately need. Matthew in his gospel demonstrates constantly that Jesus is the king of Israel in the line of David. His gospel even begins by saying that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. He remembers for us, Matthew remembers for us the many sayings about the kingdom of God that Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. Matthew presents Jesus to us as the uh, triumphant king in his entrance into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey the week before he died. When Jesus is arrested and tried in Matthew 27, verse 11, we read this. Now Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pontius Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. At every point along the way, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the king of Israel. But as sinners who have rejected God as king, the kind of king that we deserve... The kind of king we have earned for ourselves is not a king like David, much less a king like Jesus. What we deserve is a king like Saul, impressive in our own eyes, but one who will muddle everything by his own sin. That's what we deserve. We deserve a king who will oppress and enslave us. We deserve a king who will take everything from us and destroy everything in his path. That's the king we have earned for ourselves. But remember this, that God is good to give us not what we deserve, but what we need. What we need is a king who will show us what obedience to God looks like. What we need is a king who will reign in righteousness. What we need is a king who will fill our needs out of his own abundance. We need a king who will make us free from all that threatens to enslave us. We need the king that Israel rejected and who we have rejected. We need God to be our king. Dear friends, Jesus is that king. He's not just the son of David. He's not just the son of Abraham. He is the son of God, one with the Father himself. Simon Peter himself recognizes this the day that Jesus asked his disciples what they thought about who he was. And in Matthew 16, verse 16, we read, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. That word Christ means Messiah, means king, means expected holy one of Israel. You are the son of the living God. Dear friends, Jesus is the mighty and sovereign king who has defeated death in his resurrection, Matthew 28, and has all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, verse 18. He, far better than a king to govern us, we have a God who has saved us in Jesus Christ. So when you read about all the great things about David, don't be enamored with David. Be enamored with Jesus, who is the truer and better David, the one that Israel's hopes and expectations should have been upon in the first place.